One of the haunting questions of our age revolves around the limits of science and human health. As human beings, we have discovered much. Since the Enlightenment taught us to trust in human reason and in science, increasingly we have placed our fear, love, and trust in science and health above all other things. For many, science has replaced God. Darwin killed God. Scientists erected the edifice of science in his place, or so the report goes. Yet, as a culture, we remain obsessed with the notion of what happens when science goes awry. The various Terminator movies paint in vivid and frightening details the picture of a world taken over by machines. The Matrix tells a similar story, not one of extermination, but purposeful propagation for the sake of energy. Human beings became batteries. I Am Legend tells the story of a world after humanity was almost destroyed by a virus designed for military purposes. Although the culture worships science, it also finds itself obsessed by science gone bad. Like, much like the capricious gods of Rome, the god of science is undependable and capricious. He will harm just as much as he will aid. One of Dean Kuntz's latest books, 77 Shadow Street, is another of these stories, with a particular emphasis on the philosophical movement known as post-humanism. Hello and welcome to Lies Speaking Truth. I am Roy Askins, and with me is my co-host, Chris Gillespie. How are you doing, Chris? Oh, I'm doing well, thanks. We're back from a short sabbatical. We had originally scheduled Gulliver's Travels for this edition of the podcast, but we've decided to postpone that book for a later episode. In its place, we will be discussing 77 Shadow Street by Dean Koontz. Uh, a few housekeeping details to begin with. First off, you may contact us at talkback at liespeakingtruth.org. Please keep an eye out on our website, liespeakingtruth.org, for blog posts or other information. Uh, we're also setting up a schedule of books that we're going to review on the website. Uh, in this regard, there's a way to support the podcast if you're interested. If you'd like to purchase a, pl- a book, please use the link in the show notes. Uh, if you use that link, we get a certain percentage back from your purchase. If you would really like to support the podcast, please consider uh, purchasing a set of books from the list and mailing them to Chris and I. will be more than happy to move the story up on the list for you if you'd like to do that. If you do decide to purchase books, please email us first to let us know uh, what books have already purchased, etc. and so forth. Uh, please also friend us on Facebook to keep up with our updates there. Chris, have you ever read a book by Dean Koontz before? No, I've not. I've uh, seen his name pop up all over the time, especially when I uh, was a page at the public library, having to shelve his many books, uh, but never read one. And this is my first as well. I actually thought I had read one, uh, or actually heard an audiobook of one of his, but it was actually Michael Crichton. Oh, yes, of course. Yes, confusing names. (laughs) Well, I enjoyed Michael Crichton much more. Then I enjoyed uh, this one from Dean Coons, but we'll get into that as we go on. So, Chris, what are your first impressions uh, from the book? Uh, my first impressions were, uh, this is a run-of-the-mill uh, haunted house story uh, until we hit the second act. And then I was like, oh, I guess it's something different. So that was my first impression. Uh, what's my current impression? Is that really what you're asking me? <laughs> sure. What's your current impression? Uh, my current impression is he got a little bored with the haunted house story and just made it a different kind of story with the whole second act. Whether that was intentional or not, uh, I'm not for sure. Yeah. I I haven't read much in this kind of genre. I guess it was kind of like a horror story genre, I guess, yeah. originally. Yeah. And that's not usually a genre I've read much in, so I don't have uh, much to say about the horror shor- uh, story aspect of it. But certainly the second half where he de- delves into post-humanism and uh, the aspect of 
or the problems of posthumanism. Uh, I have a little bit of familiarity with. I did some stuff at the seminary on that. So yeah, and time travel, which is one of my favorite uh, devices for literary work, because uh, it, it opens up all sorts of possibilities. <laughs> yeah, you can do whatever you want. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what what the. Uh, I don't know what the curiosity is that people have with being scared, because uh, I find plenty of things in real life to be scary enough. I don't really you know, need to go find a book to scare me further. Yeah. yeah. You know, what, what's, the, what's the appeal? I mean, a little bit of uh, fear is okay, but, but to just, I guess it's the thrill of it that's kind of a, uh, stimulating. Yeah, yeah. You find that a lot in movies, uh, these movies that... I don't usually go to them because I have a hard time sleeping afterwards. It just I don't see any benefit from watching frightening things like that. You know, after reading the book, I did think about uh, the genre and my interest in it, and uh, you know, or another you know variants of it, say in film. And I don't really care for the horror films either, uh, although I really do like the alien films. Yeah, and I'm not really sure. Well, not all of them. I only like really the first two. Because uh, the third one was abysmally bad, uh, but now, of course, there is a prequel coming, and the prequel deals with the creation of the aliens, where they mm-hmm. come from, origin story, basic origin story. But uh, it's pretty apparent, at least from the trailer, that uh, they too are the result of um, scientific experimentation, um, you know, mechanization of life, not mechanization, uh, militarization of of uh, created life, and this sort of thing. So great ties in well with the book. Yes, it does. So a basic uh, plot summary, Uh, just to warn you, if you haven't read the book uh, and you don't want it spoiled, once again, this will contain spoilers. So if you want to read the book first, pause the podcast now, go read it and then come back. A basic uh, story summary, 77 Shadow Street uh, is the story of the Pendleton house, which was built at 77 Shadow Street. It was built upon a deep fissure into the Earth's core, which somehow allowed the occupants of the house every 38 years to be transported into the future. Uh, Where 38 years occurred in real time, only 38 days occurred in the future time. Uh, The story revolves around the reactions and the activity of the occupants of the Pendleton house as they're transported into a sort of dystopian future controlled by the evil, artificially intelligent mind known as the One. This sort of dystopian theme seems to be running rather heavily in our uh, podcast so far. So far, I hope we can get away from it uh, eventually. <laughs> the, the main characters are Bailey, an ex-military or ex-marine, uh, Silas, a former lawyer, retired lawyer, uh, Twyla, a country-western uh, songwriter, her son, Winnie, uh, Sparkle and her daughter Iris. Sparkle is a uh, fiction author. And then Mickey Dime, a for-hire hitman. And then there's a couple of other uh, less prominent uh, characters. The Cup Sisters, a wealthy duo who retired in the Pendleton, uh, as well as a, uh, I, f- I even forget his name, but the um, the uh, gentleman who was the conspiracy theorist. What was his name? Logan Spangler. Yes, Logan Spengler. Uh, I also should mention a rather important figure is Dr. Kirby Ignis, who was also introduced in the second uh, second act, but he ends up being uh, actually quite important in the story. So he's a, he's a scientist, 
uh, who works on, it doesn't actually say in particular what he works on, but rather advanced field of science. So a brief yeah. history of the Pendleton. It was a, a mansion built by Andrew Pendleton, once again, over a fissure in the earth, which was thought by the Indians to have allowed spirits to come from another world. However, one night, Andrew's wife and his daughter disappeared, and he went insane. Uh, the Pendleton house was later built by another man, and exactly 30 years af- 38 years after Pendleton lost his wife, uh, the butler of the new family that owned the house went nuts and killed uh, all the family members. Uh, the ones that he did not kill were never found. Uh, eventually, the Pendleton house was turned into condos, which is where the story begins uh, today. Uh, in the future, uh, Pendleton, everything in the future lives in perfect harmony. Uh, uh, Dean Kuntz makes a very uh, uh, obvious impression, or not impression, but... Uh, Points out that even the grass waves together at the perfect at the perfect rate at the same time. Everything coexists together without fault, in perfect order, controlled by the One. Throughout the various books, we get uh, various interjections from a thing calling itself the One, and Kuntz eventually reveals to us that this One is the mind created by humans to control a bunch of small nanobots, microscopic robots. Originally, the purpose of these nanobots were used to enhance human life. Uh, a philosophy known as post-humanism that we'll get to eventually uh, here a little bit later. But eventually some bright guy, Dr. Kirby Ignis's compatriot, who he worked with, used the nanobots to control the human population. The only problem is they lost control of the one, this artificially intelligent mind, and the one destroyed all of humanity in the process. In fact, everything in the world came under its control as his little minions devoured everything. After the inhabitants of the Pendleton house get thrown into the future, they eventually find out that Dr. Ignis is responsible for making the creatures and that his partner is responsible for using the nanobots to destroy humanity. At the conclusion of the book, uh, Bailey kills Dr. Ignis after they've returned back to the present time in an attempt to prevent this uh, frightening future from occurring. Uh, so, uh, some comments on the book as art. Yeah, I personally wasn't too impressed with it. Uh, I thought the character development could have been much better. I made several notes that uh, that Doc, uh, Dean Koontz was rather obvious in his uh, in his creation of the characters. There were times when he could have uh, put the characters in situations to demonstrate what their personality was like, but instead he just told us what it was like. You know, the whole showing versus telling sort of mm-hmm. uh, aspect. And basically, his introduction of the characters lacked finesse. Um, I think for the first hundred pages, I I was really uh, 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 disappointed with how he introduced the characters. Uh, I might disagree with you a little bit. I think this this book is a character driven story. It's the you know character building on one another uh, until you get to the end, and they uh, each you know meet and conclude and kind of you know tidy up all the loose edges. Uh, but it does. Uh, ring out as you're reading through the book that, well, this character is introduced now because we need to move the story along. And so now we have another character that's going to help with the next part of the story. Uh, And frankly, it was kind of hard to keep track of all the characters Uh, because there were so many. I mean, you only listed probably 10, but there was probably 20, 22 main characters, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and, you know... As he as the the book progressed, the characters did get better. I think his introduction of them was 
was very poor. One of the characters I think he did really well was Iris. Iris was autistic. And I think he did a really good job in when when he was writing from her perspective of keeping the sentences short and actually trying to write as as uh, uh, not as an auti- as an autistic person might think. Now I don't know if he really can grasp that clearly, but I think he did a good job of at least portraying it. So I think later on, as he, the story kind of warms up, the characters got better. But I think at the introduction, the way he introduced them was really poor. Like I remember. I believe it was on page 18. Let me double check here. Um, he He's introducing Bailey, who really, I think at the end of it, is probably the main character. Mm-hmm. And um, he says, let's see. I'm looking for the passage where it basically says, oh, there it is. Yeah, it was page 18. Page 18, he says, when Bailey was a boy, his mother called him my guardian. His failure to protect her was an embedded thorn perpetually working its way through his mind all these years later, too deep to pluck out. He could atone, if at all, only by reliable service to others. And that's just a blatant, I mean, it's it's so obvious uh, the way he's trying to develop the character there. Uh, it's just kind of disappointing. I think there are better ways of showing through his acts of service, the way he serves and cares for uh, others and this sort of thing, as he does throughout the book. Then rather rather than just putting it up front out there and, and telling the author you need or telling the reader you need to think about the, this character this way, uh, it just seemed kind of obvious. Uh, yeah. And and there were other instances he did that in the first hundred pages that really kind of uh, reeked of that sort of. Uh, hmm. uh, it almost seemed kind of amateurish, you know, or if not amateurish, it seemed. As though he's the sort of author that's written so many books, he's just keeping to, keeping on churning them out, and so he's got to do it the easy way. And the easy way is just tell the uh, tell the reader what do you need to think about this sort of character. Right. No, I agree with that assessment, and I think you know while the while the uh, main character is pretty obviously um, is obviously Bailey, I think what he is trying to do is is confuse us as to who the antagonist truly is in the book. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, obviously the one is is in the background throughout the book and we suspect is, you know, pulling the puppet strings. But, you know, in the end, it turns out to be two characters that we know almost nothing about mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are, are the antagonists. And, you know, uh, I thought that it, I, I didn't I didn't have any remorse, you know, with with the end of, of Dr. Uh, Ignis Kirby. <laughs> You know, because I didn't, I didn't, I couldn't sympathize uh, with both sides. I pretty much had to take the side, you know, of of Bailey that this guy needed to be shot. Yeah. And we'll talk about that later because I would disagree with you there. Okay. Uh, the, The other thing I wanted to note was I thought the book read like a movie. And I think this kind of gets back to him, uh, uh, treating, you know, he's written so many books. A number of his books have been turned into movies, I think. Um, and so it was basically just a bunch of short vignettes jumping from scene to scene, like you would see in a movie. Like you don't spend more than 30 seconds or like, you know, three or four seconds per shot, you know, and that's kind of how it seemed when reading this book. It was a bunch of short vignettes jumping from character to character, shot to shot. And it was almost like he wrote the book for the screen, the big screen. And I, that kind of bothered me. Um, uh, when I read a book, I want a book that's written as a book, and and I don't uh, and may, I, you know I can't say I don't know what was in his mind when he wrote the book, but I really dislike the way he arranged the material uh, in that sort of short vignette format. Did that bother you, Chris? Uh, it did, but in a different way. Uh, you know, I have pointed this out to you on previous show episodes, podcasts. Uh, 
that I'm sensitive to the pacing of the book and looking at the general, you know, overall arch of the book and where where does it go? When when are the main tensions and the resolutions happening? Uh, and he follows he follows the television program uh, to a T. Right. Uh, about it's about um, a third of the way in. You've got your first plot twist, major plot twist, and then about. Uh, halfway through, you start to uh, get some tension building. You get into the second act, uh, and then right away at the about two thirds through the book of the second act, you've you've got the second major plot twist, the huge plot twist, where you learn about the one, uh, and then it and then it tidies up within you know pretty close to the end, and it's pretty much cruising home. You know, every you know the antagonist gets shot, and eh, the book's over. So it followed a program. So uh, by page number, even. Which means to me that that he had this kind of laid out that this is where this is major events are going to happen, and then I just got to get there by you know filling in particular character you know things or coming up with a you know a thrilling scene here to kind of burn the time away until we get to the right get to the right moment to shift the book over. Right. So I mean maybe that's maybe that was intended or not. It's hard to say. See, part two begins at page. Uh, 253, which is, surprise, surprise, halfway through the book. <laughs> Just about. Yeah. Uh, well, and you when, get, when you, you churn out as many books as he churns out, it's almost like you have to have a formula, you know, that you follow and kind of work with. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you probably grew up reading, um, oh, I don't know. I didn't read Nancy Drew. Who did I read? Some of these formula books. Oh, did you read the Hardy Boys at all? No, I didn't read Hardy Boys either. Uh, there was like a a child detective. What was his name? It's not coming to me. Did you read the Boxcar Children? I read Boxcar Children. Sure. Yeah, I think they're probably similar. Uh, Dean Koontz is has written many television movies. Yeah. It, once again, it really seems like the writing was intended. You know, you can buy books. I've looked into these things because I've always wanted to write a book of my own and never got around to it. Uh, but you can buy books on how to write a blockbuster movie, right? Or a blockbuster book that, that they're going to want to pick up and turn into a blockbuster movie. Okay. Whether or not this is real, you know, probably not because if you could really do that, then you would do it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, it really seems like the way he wrote it, it was a formula for writing a blockbuster, uh, movie. It, it, to me, it actually almost read like a, uh, a, uh, uh, screenplay. You know what I mean? Jumping from scene to scene like that. Mm-hmm. All right. Into the actual themes of the book. One of the, probably the primary theme that comes up, especially in the uh, second act, is post-humanism. Have you ever heard of post-humanism? What's, a, what's your familiarity with it? Uh, mostly with medical uh, science, trying to uh, artificially extend life past its normal bounds. Yeah, yeah, it goes a little bit further beyond that as well. I, uh, it's an ethical dilemma uh, in the healthcare field because, as the name kind of implies, post-humanism seeks to move beyond humanity. Uh, the the ultimate goal is then to remove uh, all suffering through medicine, through the use of medicine and healthcare, 
and they'll use whatever they can to do it, whether it's computerized technologies, uh, whatever they can, medicine, whatever, to move the human beyond humanity. In many ways, it's it's kind of the next step, or they view it as the next step in evolution. As humans, we've gotten to the point in our evolution where we, we uh, take evolution by the horns, and now we can direct it toward our own ends because we're capable of this rational thought. So we can use technology then to advance ourselves to the next step beyond humanity. So the evolutionist perspective undergirds the post-humanism. Uh, of course, this creates certain certain dilemmas. Uh, the question becomes: My eyes are are good, I guess. At twenty twenty, who determines what's good vision? I, I guess they've determined twenty twenty is good vision. If I can use surgical implants to make my vision twenty ten, or if I use surgical implants to give myself uh, X ray vision, why not? Right? Uh, I can do this. Right? Science allows me to do it. Why not? And so there are certain uh, problems that come up with post humanism. Uh, first, well, Chris, do you have any uh, thoughts on on the problems that kind of arise with posthumanism? Well, you mentioned the ethical dilemma. I mean, the ethical dilemma is uh, can death be avoided? Right. Ultimately, <laughs> when it comes down to it, right. uh, you know. Uh, uh, well, here, vocation of pastor comes into play because we see people on their deathbed uh, frequently, and the question as to when to continue to exert you know, the influence of of the medical sciences upon someone when it is clear, you know, that their life is coming to an end. What What is, you know, what is the acceptable practice then? You know, to live on a ventilator for, you know, for months when death would have occurred without it? That's always a question. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not an easy question. And it seems to me that posthumanism is actually trying to avoid the question. Yes. Overcome the question in a, in a real sense. Right, yeah, I, I think uh, the posthumanist, once again, because he's working from an evolutionist perspective, which, if you're keeping track with us in the universe next door by James W. Sire, would certainly be a modernist perspective. Um, the the posthumanist can't take sin seriously. The fact of sin is death, and the posthumanist tries to conquer death uh, by by technology, by science, by uh, uh, by medicine. Do whatever it can to to get beyond uh, beyond death. They seek perfection. Uh, through augmenting and fixing our problems through medical means. Uh, Kuntz actually does, I think, a pretty good job of explaining uh, post-humanism within the course of the story. If you go to pages uh, 329 and 330, you can kind of get a summary of post-humanism from uh, these two radio hosts that live in the Pendleton, but actually don't get thrown back into the into the or thrown forward into the future because they're uh, at the time that this uh, transition happens, they happen to be um, out for lunch, uh, quite right. literally. Two characters that are foils for another foil. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, they're they're talking about Renata Dime, who is the mother of Mickey Dime, who is the high for hire. Uh, 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 assassin, and uh, and she wrote a book called A More Rational Species. And this is a quote from page three thirty. Posthumanism was not Renata's invention; only something about which she had been interested in, in oblivion. Let's try that again. Posthumanism was not Renata's invention; only something about which she had been interested in bloviating. A great many scientists and futurists believe that the day was fast approaching when human biology and technology would merge. 
when all diseases and genetic maladies would be cured and the human life vastly extended by biomims, that is, biological, microelectron, mechanical systems. These tiny machines, as small as or smaller than a human cell, would be injected by the billions into the bloodstream to destroy viruses and bacteria, to eliminate toxins and to correct DNA errors, as well as to rebuild declining organs from the inside out. And that is, in, in many ways, uh, end of quote, that is, in many ways, the, uh, the vision of posthumanism. Mm. You can also turn to page 332, and uh, he talks a little bit more about uh, perhaps the, the dangers of posthumanism. If you turn to 332, Dean Kuntz writes, The dark prospect of posthumanism was the part of it that most excited the theorists and the scientists. The augmentation of the brain with hundreds of millions of microcomputers made largely of carbon nanotubes, which would be distributed throughout our gray matter. These tiny but powerful computers would interact with one another, with the brain, and potentially with every computer in the world through a wireless network, tremendously enhancing the individual's intelligence and knowledge. The post-human species, a combination of biological and machine intelligence, never aging, nearly immortal, still human in appearance, inspired by scientists at MIT and at the Robotics Institute at the Carnegie Mellon University, and at hundreds of other universities, institutes, and corporations around the world. They saw at last a possibly swift path to a human civilization with superhuman capabilities, the total submission of nature to humanity the acquisition of godlike power, the looming end of nationalism and tribalism and superstition, therefore the elimination of all limits in all things. End of quote. That is very much the vision, uh, I think, uh, Dean Kuntz is correct in the way he interprets the vision of post-humanism. Uh, if you look at a link, I'll, there'll be a link in the show notes uh, about a, a, uh, an Oxford scholar who writes on the topic of post-humanism. And certainly look at, at his, uh, his stuff, and I think you'll see that Dean Kuntz isn't far from uh, the vision of post-humanism. And, and in some sense, Chris, who wouldn't want this? I mean, think about it. Uh, to have the access, entire access to a Brit, uh, Encyclopedia Britannica at a, the mere whim or thought because you are connected to this vast interweb of all knowledge. Or heck, you know, I know Wikipedia is not considered a reliable source of information these days, and certainly it isn't. But to have all that vast information by virtue of these tall, uh, small machines throughout your brain, who wouldn't want this, right? Uh, me. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, well, why not? <laughs> well, the flaw, the flaw of the interconnectivity is that you lose the individuality. Ah. So you've got you've got uh, you know each each person created individually, um, not necessarily imperfectly, um, created imperfectly, but but flawed by our own sin. Uh, then the identity differences are. Are reduced. Of course, part of part of the goal here is is of the perfect species is the whole eugenics project, which is also a you know a yeah. bioethical dilemma that we've had. We still have because uh, mm -hmm. we we have sex selective abortions. We're aborting ninety percent of of children diagnosed in the womb with Down syndrome. Uh, we're already doing this in one way, trying to, you know, create the uniform race. Our education philosophy largely is, is based on the idea of, of creating uh, uniform pink slime children, um, you know, ammonia-sized flesh. Uh, that's kind of a mixed metaphor, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> 
but but in any case yeah this is something that we're already doing and uh, i follow a blog uh, we should put a link to this blog actually in the show notes as well uh wesley j smith he's a frequent guest on issues etc uh he writes for first things uh, on bioethics and he talks i mean he just had a post uh, to uh yeah today on uh death on demand euthanasia assisted suicide and he talks about these things uh, every day, pretty much has another post uh, showing how <laughs> our eth- bioethical decisions uh, are not based upon uh, common uh, morality or natural law morality, based instead upon this, um, what do you want to call it, Pragmat- you know, pragmatic utilitarian society. Mm-hmm. So. And, you know, I think uh, in the book, I think Dean Kuntz it makes it very obvious that he's against this sort of idea too, largely, as you've pointed out, because you lose the individual in it. And for all the faults of the book, I think he's right in the way he portrays it and the stance he takes. I mean, he's very obviously against uh, the sort of uh, technology at whatever cost, you know. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, and, you know, I did find it... Uh it was a nice change in the second act to bring in the the scientific aspect uh bioethics you know things that i'm interested in mm-hmm. but it did come off quite preachy <laughs> <laughs> you know it's like yeah. well i thought you were telling me you know a haunted house horror story but you were really using this as a device to uh, try to convince me that perhaps i need to think about uh posthumanism you know in a critical way what, which, I mean, is that good art or is it just uh, manipulative, you know, uh, use of fiction? I don't know. I, I took it, um, and perhaps this is the reason I confused him with Michael Crichton, because the audiobook I listened to from Michael Crichton was next. And Michael Crichton is also one to criticize technology through his use of narrative. And that's probably why I con- uh, uh, confused Kuntz and Crichton here, because the the book I read or I, I listened to, was very much that, where he, he critiqued some of the modern technologies in medicine uh, through the story. And this was very obvious what Kuntz was doing, too, like you said. Uh, I, was, I kind of took it like you did, uh, as more manipulative than anything else. Right. And, you know, uh, Crichton is an interesting author because he has uh, been dealing with that subject for a long time. I, th- I think after Jurassic Park, the next book I read from him... Uh, was Andromeda Strain, which was 1975, maybe, mm-hmm. uh, uh, dealing with uh, uh, virus creation in an underground lab, and kind of the you know the horror when that virus is released in those close mm-hmm. ca- you know close captivity, mm-hmm. and uh, you know would should we really be engineering viruses? And this was already in the late 70s. Uh, the movie's pretty frightening too. That was one of his stronger works. Of course, Jurassic Park has to do with um, resurrecting dinosaurs and what would we unleash upon this world? Yeah. Um, he, I think, uh, I think Dean Kuntz is also spot on when he points out later on in the book, uh, around page uh, 424 or so, that the ultimate purpose of the post-humanist movement is uh, the immortality of the human being. Once again, as we've kind of hinted at, uh, that uh, post-humanism seeks to, actually we haven't hinted at, we've been really obvious about the fact that post-humanism seeks to overcome death, to overcome the results of sin. And so here's a quote from page 424. Witness said, I don't use that name Jason anymore. I'm just witness. I'm young because I was among the first volunteers for full-spectrum biomims enhancement. In fact, I was your first. 
Kirby put a hand to the young man's face and said wonderingly, So it worked. A kind of immortality. It worked, Witness confirmed. And I think it's exactly right. I think the whole purpose of this movement is to see just how long we can preserve uh, preserve human life. Mm-hmm. But again, at what cost? And yeah. I, you know, and to his credit, Kunst does, um, you know, emphasize the, the, what actually happens. Uh, you know, there, there are, there is no civilization. Um, you lose, you lose any reason for cities uh, because there's the uniformity. Uh, what, what people are turned in these uh, uh, pogromites, mm-hmm. uh, which are these distorted versions of of the original human, and and they have one one aim and one goal is just to kill. And to become part of the one. I mean, that's the whole thing. Like you, mm-hmm. you mentioned, and here we're kind of getting into our next theme, human exceptionalism. Mm-hmm. But but uh, uh, the whole point of the one and the whole point of the post-humanist movement with these small little micro-machines is to incorporate into everyone, into this one, kind of like the Star Trek cyborg thing. Uh, the um, Do you know what I'm talking about? The The Borg? The Borg, yes, yes. Yeah, my apologies. It's been a while since I've seen the movie, right? It's interesting you mentioned the Borg because he also uh, uh, quotes another uh, and much older uh, Borg-like science fiction character, uh, even even probably better known science fiction character uh, antagonist, um, the Daleks from Doctor Who. And how do I? Why do I say the Daleks from Doctor Who? Because the Daleks cry. When they come upon an inferior species, which of course is every other species, is exterminate, exterminate. Ah, I did not know that. But of course, I've never seen Doctor Who, so I'm not one of the Doctor Whoians. Blatant Doctor Who reference uh, every time the one calls exterminate, exterminate across the, uh, well, I don't know if it was the one, but the security system in the in the house, mm-hmm. which was put in right. place by, uh, who was that put in place by? By Witness? I believe it was put in place by the one, but uh, Witness was, he wasn't part of it. He was separate from it, but I believe it was put in place by the one. But he could interact with it, correct? Yeah, he could interact with it, right. Mm -hmm. Witness, uh, we should explain, Witness, uh, who we just heard the quote from, is also named Jason, one of the first to become enhanced by biomims. Uh, his whole purpose in in life, he still lived, and his whole purpose was to witness the downfall of human civilization. In in many ways, he was the last uh, human alive, and uh, and so his goal was to witness the fall of human civilization. And as the one points out again and again, his whole purpose was to incorporate or to remove any sort of individuality whatsoever, uh, but to make everything uh, to remove actually. Uh, as he said, any trace of humanity from the earth, which eventually he did. First off, he remo- began, he, she, it, whatever, the one began by removing uh, human beings from the earth and then concluded by also remo- removing any evidence of uh, of uh, civilization from the earth, removed all the cities so that the only building left is actually the Pendleton House. And it stood as a marker, a reminder of uh, of his creator, Dr. Ignis, and uh, Dr. Ignis's compatriot, whose name for the life of me I cannot remember, who was also introduced at the very end of the book once again. So anyways, uh, that's kind of... And, and you know, uh, incidentally, I think uh, 
he does a good job of tying together the the philosophy of posthumanism with the thought of Renata Dime and this kind of uh, and Mickey Dime. Let's let's talk a little bit about Mickey Dime. Mickey Dime was the for hire. Uh, assassin. And Mickey Dime was the the son, of course, of Renata Dime, who kind of expanded on some of these post-human themes. Uh, But uh, Dean Kuntz does a good job of showing how uh, that post-humanism begins from the idea of inverting truth, or uh, we each get to decide what's true for us. As Mickey Dime, who is not so much a philosopher, is trying to cope with uh, some of the events that are going on as he's thrown into the future, he's talking to himself about how what's true is what he determines to be true. Do you remember those? Uh, do you remember what I'm talking about, Chris? Correct. Yeah, it was pretty much in our first interaction with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's talking about, um, you know, how he he's now from a different place, mm-hmm. you know, that he he doesn't think like uh, the others do anymore, that he is that he, that he is ex- he's exceptional, <laughs> uh, but not in a not in a moral sense, but in an amoral sense. Right. And, and he makes the point that one can conquer gravity, for instance, by redefining what the term up means or redefining what the term down means. Mm-hmm. And so, and so what, what Dean Kuntz is doing, and I think he's right here, is that if we redefine morality and ethics, if we redefine truth according to what I determine is true for me, uh, then I can, then, then all limits are off, all moral boundaries are off, and I can do whatever I want because I determine what's true. Yeah, and well done that it it's actually in Mickey's character it's a reflection upon what his mom taught him. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, and it's always about pleasing mom. And mom mm-hmm. would be pleased that he murdered his brother before mm-hmm. his brother could get to him first because that was that's the uh that's the exceptional thing to do. That's the advancement of the species. You know, is to take action uh, without hesitation or or whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 then the ultimate uh, result being that the one, this creation of this artificial mind that destroys all of humanity, actually becomes a moral good uh, because we have redefined what morality is, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that no longer does human life have value and worth because we've redefined what is good as, uh, you know, power or efficiency. He spent a whole section talking about how machines are so efficient and, and that's what makes them good because they're so efficient. And he's efficient even when he's doing sex, right? Having sex. He's efficient and he gets disappointed in his partners because they're not as efficient as he is, et cetera, and so forth. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, which I, that we were going to move on to human exceptionalism, and I kind of, uh, I kind of diverted us for a bit. Uh, what actually brought us this whole idea of this book was human exceptionalism. Uh, first off, uh, from the First Things blog, uh, from Wesley Smith's uh, portion on the blog, <laughs> from Secondhand Fantastic. Smoke. Yeah, so he made the connection that the you know medical ethics in this story. What What does he mean by human exceptionalism? So the one says, I am the one, I see all, but the blind man in apartment 1A is blind in many ways, as are all human beings, even those uh, with functioning eyes. They are all blind to their folly, to their ignorance, to their history, to the future they will make for themselves, a future born of self-loathing. Even those who know that the 20 universal constants ensure a universe that will support life, who know intellectually as well as intuitively that the human race must be exceptional and must be graced with a destiny, even they are capable of hating not only others of their own kind, but also their kind in general. 
Some are capable of such self-loathing that they fantasize a world without humanity and take comfort from that dream. Uh, human exceptionalism is saying that, that uh, I mean, it, it's, it's a reflection upon natural law. One can look and see uh, that no other creature on this earth um, it has the ability for rational thought, for example. And that makes us exceptional, an exception uh, to the rest of creation. Of course, we uh, can see that from the scriptures itself, where, where man is given um, a special, uh, special duties and functions that aren't given to the rest of the creation. Uh, to name it, for example, or to care for it, uh, making you know uh, humanity the the height of creation, you know the goal even of creation. Um, so you can see it from both a you know a, a secular standpoint or or from a biblical standpoint. We are exceptional. Uh, different from others, and there are duties attached to that, which even the one would acknowledge, right? Right. That that they would know their history, recognize their folly, their ignorance, um, consider the future, and not just take actions recklessly. Um, to recognize that they are capable of hating their own kind and of others, and and you know to avoid that. Uh, for the sake of, of the preservation of the race. Right. And and of course, we see the erosion of this. Uh, once again, I think post-humanism leads to erosion of this by the erosion of the individual, right? Uh, because if no human being is, is uh, exceptional in any way, if we are all essentially the same, and because even among humans, we have those who are exceptional and those who are not, right? Is, is there a connection between post-humanism and this idea that we are no better than the animals? That if here's the connection, human exceptionalism means, uh, or or posthumanism would have no problem augmenting an animal, for instance. Say I were to take my dog and implant in him uh, uh, microorganisms in his brain or in his eyes and turn him into a speaking dog, you know, and give him these abilities that that exceed uh, what a normal dog could do. In many ways, he could actually exceed in his abilities, in his mind, in his reasoning, in his whatever. Uh, that of a human being, and there w- there would be nothing to distinguish him from from or 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 point to him as that which under, is under the dominion of human beings, as we are are uh, assigned by God in, in the garden or in the in Genesis, right? Human beings mm-hmm. are given given dominion. So for the post-human, it's really not even post-human. It's post. Um, well, by being post-human, we essentially end up, I think, equating ourselves with the animal kingdom, right? Because we are. We are stepping – humanity is just an intermediary stage to another point rather than being already at this current time, uh, the apex of creation. And right. I think that's, that's what you were saying. So. Yeah, and what, it, what is important to note, I think, is that uh, posthumanism isn't just a philosophy. It's a religion. Mm. And it, it, has a common, it has the same common goal that, that all uh, world religions have. Uh, which is uh, to transcend uh, death, uh, to to live forever. That is, you know, eternity. But not only that, to, uh, with the exception of Christianity, uh, to escape this body, right? You know, to 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 overcome the weakness of the flesh um, by becoming uh, pure spirit, or it depends on which religion we talk about, but. but you know, somehow uh, overcoming it, becoming something else, becoming God's ourself. 
which I yeah. think is the which is the goal is is to is to 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 murder God and become God ourselves, just like the one did. <laughs> well, and and uh, and you really touched on it when you said to to escape this human body. Uh, there's a link in the show notes for a book uh, written by Brent Waters entitled "From Human to Posthuman," and uh, in this book he talks about how part of the posthuman agenda is to try and figure out a way to encapsulate the mind even after the body has died through the internet so that a person could continue conceivably to live on even though their body is dead so they live on through internet through internet interactions like is there a way to to take the the mind and map the mind and download it so that it's a living thinking entity on on some kind of uh, computer uh, you know chip somewhere out there in the interwebs, the vast interwebs. And that's part of the goal of, of posthumanism is to enable the person to live apart from, apart from his body. Correct. That, that actually is the subject of uh, the Battlestar Galactica prequel show that went for two seasons before it was canceled uh, <laughs> called Caprica. Uh, whereas the, the lead character, um, well, one of the lead characters, his daughter, uh, dies tragically, but not before uh, he's been able to record uh, her her uh, soul, I guess, electronically into his system. So, gotta love it. Oh, it was a great show. It really was because it dealt with the same it dealt with the same subject. I hadn't really thought about it until now, but there you go. There you have it. There it's you there. have it. A link to it, it in the show notes. Uh, which, if you want to talk about medical ethics, watch Battlestar Galactica. All right, <laughs> which I have seen. I think I saw the uh, the beginning, but that was it. Just the uh, uh, mini series. Yeah, I think I oh, just you, saw the mini series. Oh, you didn't get you didn't get far enough into it, right? Right. Because the, the question the question of whether a machine uh, could be uh, uh, have a soul, have an entity, um, mm-hmm. be able capable of worship, capable of um, of love. Yeah. You know, it's it's far future, um, but uh, it is interesting because the timeline gets very confused. <laughs> yeah, and, and it turns yeah. out that well, I won't tell you what it turns out because then I'll spoil it. That's fine. Yes, uh, this uh, brings up uh, is certainly tied to this, and we've talked about this too. Is uh, is the connection to morality in our current ph- philosophical? Uh, climate. We talked about this when we when uh, Mickey Dime tries to control his reality, but he does this because he's working from uh, Renata's teaching. And and here's a quote. If you go to page two twenty five, here's a quote from Renata Dime. His mother said, "The strong act; the weak react." She said, "The weak have regrets; the strong have triumphs." She said, "The weak believe in God; the strong believe in themselves." She said, "The strong and the weak are part of the food chain, and it is better to eat than be eaten." She said the strong have pride, that the weak have humility, and that she was proud of her her humility and humble about her pride. She said that power justifies all things, and that absolute power justifies all things absolutely. She said that judging Cain for killing Abel was like condemning a vigorous wolf pup for drinking his share of the mother's milk and the share of the sickly pup that might otherwise have survived to the detriment of the pack. End quote. That goes over to page 226. You, you know, part of me wondered if this is supposed to be kind of a, <laughs> a character of somebody like Ayn Rand. 
you know, with her soul, whole philosophy of, of objectivism and mm-hmm. this idea that, uh, that, you know, I am, you know, I, I make myself or, or the, the, the virtue, she, her, her touchstone was the virtue of, of selfishness, right? That I benefit society by being selfish, uh, and taking care of myself so that if I'm a, if I'm a wealth, uh, an executive, I benefit society by getting as much money as I can so that then I can employ more people and so forth and so on. And so she builds her whole philosophy around this philosophy of, of selfishness. Uh, or perhaps maybe a conflation of uh, of uh, Ayn Rand and so, and like Nietzsche, the will to power thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I just wonder if that's kind of the idea behind this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, perhaps. I haven't read uh, Ayn Rand, but I have read Nietzsche, so I would agree. Uh, and I've read a little bit of Ayn Rand. I read uh, The Fountainhead, uh, but and I have sitting here, and we're going to, have to do this one day. Uh, Atlas Shrugged, uh, from what I understand, that's like uh, the quintessential Ayn Rand work. So, hmm. well, I'll I'll read it only because it's referred to on multiple occasions uh, in the first season of Mad Men. <laughs> you know, sometimes I wonder if we spend more time talking about movies on here than we do books. That's a television program, but in any case. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Uh, The Murdering and Untried Man. You said, Chris, that uh, you kind of agreed with with, uh, Bailey that uh, the only viable option for Kirby Ignis is for him to die. And so the book ends, uh, once again, this is a huge spoiler alert. Oh, no, no, don't, don't misunderstand me. Yeah, well, let me finish. Let me finish. You can okay. explain it in just a minute. All right. Uh, the book ends with Bailey killing Dr. I- Ignis uh, because of something Ignis will do in the future. Um, uh, Kirby refused to acknowledge the dangers of the technology he was he was developing and thought that he could use it only for good purposes. So if you, I've got a couple of pages, quotes from different pages here. So if you begin on 434, Kirby says, uh, Bailey, you're making a terrible mistake. And Ignis says, my work, our work at the Institute can relieve all human suffering. The world can be made right. But of course, Witness then points out the irony. There is no disease in the future. Edictness said, forget about this future. It was never intended. And then we move on to 439. Bailey shot him three times, point blank in the chest with Mickey Dimes' pistol, perhaps saving the world as he had been unable to save his mother from a drunk and violent father. Uh, End quote. And once again, we have to end with the terrible character development that began in the first hundred pages, but I'll get over that eventually. So, uh, you know, uh, Chris, what, what did you mean when you said that when you were talking about, uh, you kind of agreed that Bailey had to kill Dr. No, I was, I was saying that, uh, Dean Koontz gave us no option. Okay. Because, uh, Dr. Ignis was so poorly developed. We had, we had, we didn't identify with him at all. We didn't even sympathize with, with his desires unless, unless we already, perhaps we're of this, you know, post-human mindset ourselves, that mm-hmm. would be the only way that we would sympathize with, with what he was saying. Uh, he left us, uh, the author left us with just um, uh, basically to identify with Bailey and witness and just to say, this man should be shot. Gotcha. Uh, and I, you know, uh, that that didn't ring so true. I didn't think it was quite so cut and dry. <laughs> <laughs> Be- well, yeah. Because, because you know, Ignis said that this was not what he intended. He this was wrong, and he didn't, he wouldn't make it right now that he knew this was the possible future. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think Kuntz is trying to establish for us uh, that no matter what our intentions are, the consequences are going to be too grave. 
uh, and that it shouldn't even be explored. Right. right. You know, we shouldn't even consider um, this concept. But then again, I just, you know, was at a family gathering and my uncle of, oh, he must be in his 50s, maybe 60, I don't know. He, uh, you know, he's walking again because he got a new hip. You know, he has a mechanical <laughs> hip. And he's able to go to work, you know, he has a cane, mm-hmm. but, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, is that post-human? It's a good uh, question. You know, he was otherwise, his livelihood uh, was in danger, uh, but his general health wouldn't have been, although if he wasn't able to move, then he would become more, you know, um, sedentary, and so probably, you know, gain weight, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so it's it's kind of a difficult question is you know where where do you draw the line when do you say uh, you know two hips two knees um, you know and an elbow well that's that's where we're going to draw the line because otherwise you're going to have you know every joint replaced with a mechanical one. So the question becomes to bring in another movie: When do you become Darth Vader? <laughs> I mean, right? I mean, more machine than human, right? So right. where where do you draw the line? And and I, I don't know. I think it's a case-by-case basis. But uh, getting back to the shooting, uh, I think we would both agree that it's it's not Bailey's job to act as judge, jury, uh, and ex- executioner. You know, it's kind of ironic that uh, what he does, he, he almost, in killing Dr. Ignis, is working from the post-humanist perspective. The post-humanist says, look at all the harm and pain and evil we can prevent with this science and technology. Mm-hmm. And Bailey's rationalization of his murder of Dr. Ignis is, look at all the harm and evil I can prevent by killing this man. Right. And so the underlying presumption is uh, morality is right or wrong for me based on the result. It's very utilitarian. Right or wrong is, is based on the result uh, that eventually comes of my actions. Right. Rather than the action itself being uh, moral or not moral right and the problem with utilitarianism is that it's it's completely uh in the moment and in the eye of the beholder so you know bailey cannot see all of the possible futures for ignis you know that the, he he can't really make a, a fair determination whether ignis will act responsibly or not with this knowledge and with the, with with his skills uh and you know one of the utilitarian philosophies that or pra- excuse me practices uh, born out of uh, post-humanist philosophy is the is eugenics, and the act then would be uh, aborting, you know. And there isn't, I don't know, there there are many times stories that come out about so and so, you know, was a, a botched abortion, but now, um, you know, is a world class scientist or an actor or you know an artist or whatever. Uh, the mother, you know, is thinking completely utilitarian. I don't have the money to support this child, or I'm not ready to be a mom yet, or um, I hated the father, or what, whatever, you know, or potential of disease here. And it's thinking, you know, in the moment from their own perspective, but but has no idea about uh, the longevity, you know, the long term. What's, what's going to come? Uh, what will this child contribute, for example? Right. It, it's it. Uh, if you want to go to Merriam-Webster, a quick uh, definition is a doctrine. Utilitarianism is a doctrine that the useful is the good, and that the determining consideration of right conduct should be the usefulness of its consequences. Uh, that is to say, it is the goal to maximize the happiness for the most number of people. Uh, and, and so, in many ways, it is kind of the philosophy behind uh, a post-humanism, 
and the sort of uh, undermining of the individual because it's the happiness for the largest number of people uh, possible, like you're saying. So there doesn't tend to be a look toward the future, a view towards the future, but immediate happiness here and now. And it, right. it's in many ways one of the biggest blights, I think, on modern thought. Right. Because none of us know um, what, what God has in store, right? Well, n- none of us knows what God has in store, and I think none of us n- can really, uh, in connection with that, none of us knows what God has in store. We're not capable of seeing the future. And so the maximum happiness, what is happiness? Happiness becomes redefined uh, according to the time that you happen to live in. So right now, the time that I happen to live in might be uh, the the best, most happiness might be gaining lots of money or whatever, but that could change 50 years down the road, right? So, so without a set absolute moral boundaries, uh, this sort of maximum happiness is subject to change based on whatever popular opinion happens to be. Right, but I think if we listen and take God at his word, we would say that uh, the possibility of advancement of the human species uh, is into something better than what it is now as a false and misleading dream. Uh, you're totally right. Yeah. And actually, if we put any kind of hope uh, in you know, utility or science or post-humanism, um, you know, ultimately we're going to, we're going to be disappointed. (laughs) Well, and, and, uh, I guess we are Lutheran pastors, so it's appropriate to be Christological about it, that if we're going to look to the ultimate human being, the ultimate and what it means to be (laughs) post-human means to be Christ, right? And Christ is fully (laughs) human. He's not post-human in any way, right? He's fully human and fully God. And so what we look to as human beings is being built up and being uh, uh, created in his image and being continually uh, renewed and strengthened in that image through uh, through his gifts, through the preaching of the word and the sacraments. Mm-hmm. And which means essentially then the overcoming of our sin, not by our own works, but by the overcoming of our sin by his work, by his sacrificial death and atonement. Yeah, philosophically, you might say it this way, uh, that we're less than human. Uh, and our attempts to be more human uh, take us further from what it means to be human. But in Christ, we are made um, uh, as we as we were and as we ought to be. Uh, a little bit here and there now, and uh, ultimately, finally, at the resurrection of the dead. Yeah, in Christ, we become, as Pilate said, behold the man, right? Mm-hmm. In Christ, we become the man. We become truly human, uh, but only in Christ. Mm-hmm. So. I think that's a fitting conclusion for the book. Uh, We will next uh, be reviewing uh, Game of Thrones by George R.R. Martin. The first book. The first book. The first book of the the series. Um, This is a fantasy book set in a medieval sort of uh, environment. Uh, Quick warning for uh, those who listen to the podcast. This is rated for adults, not for children. Uh, you might say it's uh, – take the rating of the TV program. It's probably rated R. Uh, please use the link in the show notes to purchase the book if you're interested. Uh, once again, you can contact us via, via talkback at liespeakingtruth.org. We certainly appreciate any uh, feedback that you would give us and look forward to hearing from you. Indeed. Thank you, Chris, and we'll see you again next month. Signing off. Signing off. Thank you.